Hey guys, here are a few topics we're covering on TheRinger.com this week. We're covering the midterm election, Julia Roberts' new show Homecoming, and the worst person of the week on The Good Place. Also, make sure you check out the rest of The Ringer Podcast Network for more pop culture conversation. David, last night MSNBC broke out their breaking news Chiron to announce that Chuck Todd was on the set. What I want to know is, in 2018, what event would be so obscure that it wouldn't constitute breaking news on a cable station? Oh, um, wow. Wow, that was... I mean, this is MSNBC... God love them. I mean, I used to joke all the time that they would break out like the countdown clock for just like any old episode of uh, of like what of like you know the Rachel Maddow show when it was coming on. I guess breaking news. Breaking news. Chuck Todd arrives is at least like it is a statement of fact. I don't know what I mean at MSNBC. The bar. I mean, I guess the bar is is pretty low. I would go with like. I mean. I would say, like, breaking news, Steve Kornacki bought slacks, but I've actually seen them have that discussion on the air, so I'm not sure. Uh, I'll tell you how low the bar was last night is <laughs> Steve Schmidt arriving on set was also breaking news. So that's, that's oh my gosh. Do you think, do you think breaking news, we've got pastries at craft services would make, would, would make the guy? <laughs> I think, I think the liberal joke to make here, by the way, is what, what would be too small? For MSNBC or any cable station to break out the breaking news, Chiron, the answer would be massive voter suppression. That would be the... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, breaking news. We're recording the press box on a Wednesday. Yeah, it's it's not breaking news that we're back in front of a mic. This is the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you don't have to apologize for Beto's F-bomb. <laughs> we are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. Welcome to the special election edition of The Press Box. Wednesday morning, David. And we are going to hit last night's results in so many different ways. First, we'll talk about the top-line news from last night. Democrats win the House. Republicans pad their advantage in the U.S. Senate. And media members grope around for a unified storyline. We'll help them. Second, we'll talk about the strange final days of the campaign from the closing argument of Donald Trump and his allies, the migrant caravan, the middle class tax cut, I am making air quotes here, et cetera, et cetera. Truly a strange moment in American political history. And finally, a grab bag of election fun up to and including Trump's Game of Thrones meme, a weird sort of Trump ringer social media strategy moment. <laughs> it all comes together eventually. Plus, as always, the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, but let's start with last night. Did you notice, as I did, as the results finally came in, Democrats claimed the House, which was first called by Fox News. That was kind mm -hmm. of a, that, first of all, kind of a moment, right? Did you, did you yeah. love the liberal paranoia on Twitter? Fox, I believe it was around 8.30, 9.30 Eastern when Fox called it, which seemed kind of early. <laughs> yeah. The Democrats had fallen behind in both of the Florida races at that point. And there was this kind of wave of conspiracy theory, theorizing, like, well, what is this? Did did Rush and Sean Hannity cook this up on the platform <laughs> with Trump in Missouri? Are they trying to, to, to convince people in California and Nevada not to vote? And that's the diabolical plan? I, I just love that. It's just the 18th. We're we're in this, we're in this, and and really not for bad reason. We're in this like maximal conspiracy era. <laughs> and even even the good news for the Democrats sort of winds up setting it off. Yeah, I mean that that's only to be expected, right? I mean, I I immediately had a bunch of maybe had conspiracy theories of my own that were much more low key. I mean, just about like was this actually like Fox's just you know were they just trying to score a point? Was this a sort of like in house reaction to the Hannity campaigning with Trump moment? Um, but all of that sort of beside the point, right? I mean, they were right, and and you know if that had been. Uh, you know, Nate Silver, then they would have gotten a big pat on the back for being out there in front and and being correct. I I think that, I mean, I, obviously, I think that one of the big takeaways from from and we're going to talk about a lot of this in depth. One of the big takeaways was the sort uh, was the sort of gun shyness of all of the networks from getting out too far ahead of what they could a hundred percent verify, and um and I think that Fox, you know, it seemed to me that from the very beginning of the night. Uh, the people on the Fox set had an idea of where the night was going 
And, um, you know, I, th- I think that they just were a little bit more confident with their prediction than, than the other networks were willing to be for fear of how it would look if they got it wrong. Yeah, I mean, but that was that was kind of a funny media hiccup in the night because we came into the we came into it thinking thanks to Nate Silver and the various election forecasters the Democrats were going to win the House fairly easily and there was mm-hmm. going to be a massive uphill climb for them to win the Senate and yet there I feel there was this like hour where James Carville got shoved onto the MSNBC set and looked just completely <laughs> depressed. Just look, just looked incredi- incredibly angry. Well, they they've been they kept him in a closet on the MSNBC set for the past three years. So I think that's probably why he was. A- <laughs> He'd been there since he had to come out and say that Hillary wasn't going to beat uh, yeah. going to beat Trump. He he looked incredibly depressed, and everybody's like, "Uh oh, what calls has he been making?" And then I think this was in um, this was in John Copeland's column in the New York Times uh, this morning or last night too that. Like it was John Dickerson, all these people all of a sudden went down, and that's when Nate Silver's forecast all of a sudden dropped to like forty percent odds that the Democrats are going to win the House. Yes. So there was this kind of kind of hour of of funereal air on uh, across television, and then all of a sudden Fox just called it, and it was like, okay, we're back to where we we thought we were. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was a weird. The, it was the, just a weird sort of roller coaster that didn't seem to actually have any basis. I don't know if it was the way I was consuming it, but the the five thirty eight jump from like like seven to eight odds to two to five odds or whatever seemed like it happened in a, you know there, there was one step in between, but the but it just seemed like it happened so quickly, and you know for all of the sometimes unnecessary crap that five thirty eight and Nate Silver get just be, maybe mostly because they're the sort of big kid on the on that block. Um, to change your formula mid, you know, halfway through the night, or just at the drop of a hat, just to just to err on the conservative side, I, it, it's just sort of galling, right? I mean, for I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't be that upset about these sort of like statistical predictions, and I and I and I got to say, I'm not, I wasn't too, wasn't too upset about it at the time, but in retrospect, I mean, doesn't just sort of like keeping a certain sticking sticking with your, you know, don't don't switch formulas midstream. Isn't that the old political canard that that that, uh, that I mean, it's just yeah, it, it it just seems sort of insane. Dance dance with who brung you? We would also accept as <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all purpose political saying. So, dance, yeah, dance with the with the algorithm that brung you. Yes, that's it was. <laughs> he tweeted at one point last night. This is what happened. He said, "I'm trying to do six things at once." We think our live election day forecast is definitely being too aggressive. This is when it was downgrading the Democrats' chances. And are going to put it on a more conservative setting where it waits for projection calls instead of making inferences from partial vote counts. So it kind of switched. Also, by the way, we should note at the same time happening in media land was the New York Times needle was not coming online, which caused this enormous amount. Remember last time the needle caused the angst because it was – sort of pointing more toward Trump than a lot of people thought it should be during 2016. And now the angst was caused by the fact that the needle did not appear. There was no needle. Uh, and when the needle finally came, it was like, what, like 90%? Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was, it was going all all Democratic House. But there was that kind of weird vanishing period. I think also the um another kind of interesting fact of last night, especially to how it was covered and to how lefties kind of process the news was the fact that the three dream candidates of progressives being Andrew Gillum in Florida, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, and Beto O'Rourke in Texas all lost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Abrams and O'Rourke's case, it was considered, I would say, pretty pretty much of a long shot for either one of them to win. But Gillum was seen uh, in a, by a lot of people as expected to win. Mm-hmm. They all lost. I think that is one of those things that kind of set up, kind of uh, wiped away a lot of storyline theater because there were a lot of people I saw, speaking of Chuck Todd, on the MSNBC set, set early saying, boy, if Stacey Abrams and Gillum win, are Democrats going to reevaluate how they run candidates in the South? Are they going to think about it completely <laughs> differently? There was a New York Times front pager on Election Day contrasting Bill Nelson and Andrew Gillum and saying, here are two differing visions of how the Democrats could run, right, in Trump world. The kind of squishy, moderate Nelson versus the uh, incredibly smart, articulate, pithy, uh, unabashedly progressive Gillum. Well, guess what? They both lost (laughs) last night. And I just felt that, I felt that just wiped away 
not only, you know, the kind of all the things on the Democrats wish list, but but also just great media storylines that were just sitting there waiting to be plucked. Well, I mean, you touched on this in your piece and that it's the sort of, uh, you know, the the, the storylines, the meta analysis is just coming in real time faster and faster. Right. I mean, it's just it's just layer upon layer of, of what could this mean? Um and you know, I think to some extent. By the way, we should say that there's that there's uh, in both. It looks like there's going to be some level, some recount in Florida, although that's probably going to affect the Senate race more than the governor's race. And mm-hmm. and that Stacey Abrams is not conceding in Georgia either. That it is within the realm of possibility that Brian Kemp, as we at, at as we record this, it's within the realm of possibility that he drops below fifty percent, forcing a runoff, which yes. will historically probably favor Brian Kemp um, in a, you know, in a runoff race, but, but, you know, anything's possible now. Um, but you, you know, I mean, back to your piece and, and, and your comment, um, you know, I think that it, I think that it feels like, you know, watching it, you just get overwhelmed by the statistical analysis and also this meta analysis. And it's not that, you know, on some level, yeah, this is a, this is a world that we've created for ourselves. And I'll let you talk more about that, but, I think there's also a big part of it where we're just sort of, um, you know, that we all we have kind of like a, 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 a communal false memory of how these narratives have formed in the past. You know, it was, it's not like a, it, that election night just was like a slower cook in previous years. I think on some level, this meta analysis was just non-existent on election night, right? I mean, that's sort of the the the, the broader storylines form over time, and and looking back at how elections went. And we're expecting these things to be to play out in real time, second by second, in front of us on every different cable channel. I think that's right, and I just think that the type of analysis, you know, when we look at last night, Steve Kornacki or John King over on CNN, you know, being able to sort of talk <laughs> about precinct by precinct or county by county returns on those maps, yes, that did not exist in the same way twenty years no. ago or thirty. No, years I just, ago. I just, I just wanted to interrupt to say that what my favorite part early in the night when I was just sort of like settling in and flipping back and forth between all three cable channels, I thought that there was a the the difference between the various uh, the various um, touch screens on the three major cable networks was sort of instructive. That MSNBC just has this like very this like functional small touchscreen TV manned by Steve Kornacki and presumably like an army of nerds in a room behind him. Uh, John King has had a similar screen, but then there was an entire CGI uh, soundstage that was also uh, the screen and and completely digitized throughout the entire night. <laughs> and then on Fox, it seemed that they just had like a giant bingo card taped to the wall. I'm not exa- like I was I was trying I was trying to figure out in what sense that was more helpful to the viewer, but it was uh it was it was very bizarre. The whole the the just the the entire presentation was uh was just something else. Ed Harris Faulkner who was just like trying to explain the differences in colors between tiles and this <laughs> yellow line in the middle. It was very it was it was it was pretty entertaining. There was also this great moment, but I don't know how how late you stayed up on the East Coast, but David Wasserman, who is this from the Cook Political Report, he was working for NBC and MSNBC, you know, helping them with with the calls of the races, but was mm-hmm. not on camera. But way after midnight, I think after two o'clock Eastern, he was allowed to come onto the set <laughs> and had the kind of Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man moment with Steve Kornacki. <laughs> but he was kind of the less glib Kornacki, you yeah. know? Kornacki kind of, as you say, those plaid slacks and, you know, that the tie kind of jauntily un- unknotted and looking like, you know, standing in front of that board. And then and the kind of awkward version came out and they were kind of talking and had this amazing conversation. I love that, by the way. That was also, by the way, my sign of I am I am staying up way too late now. Yes. Was when I was, one, Willie Geist started hosting. And I was just kind of like, wait, what, what just happened? There was kind of a, <laughs> kind of a transfer of power. Uh, there's no better feel for people listening to this who are on the East Coast. There's no weirder feeling than being on the West Coast and having like the early morning host just appear before your eyes. <laughs> and you're just like, you're just kind of rubbing your eyes, trying to figure out if you're seeing this correctly, if they've changed the schedule or if no. In fact, you were just up way too late. Yo, and Willie Geist came on and said, for the next four hours, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to roll with this thing and, and, and then throw it to morning Joe. <laughs> he was like, whoa, we're, we're going all the way here. I shouts knew, to Willie, shouts to Willie guys, by the way, my mom's favorite news personality. I knew, but I knew I was up too late when, when a commercial came on and it was Bill Engvall from the blue collar comedy tour, like <laughs> selling life insurance. 
It was kind of like those old Glenn Beck gold uh, ads, right? You're like, whoa, <laughs> what, yeah. what weird, what weird time warp have I got into? The, the 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 one of the just the total side note. One of the most depressing things about doing this podcast in general is just seeing the ads that run on all of the news channels all day long. Where you'll you'll just be watching like MSNBC <laughs> or Fox News, and just in the middle of the day, which presumably they could be able to get some ads, and they're just getting like really niche, you know, medical uh, equipment that I hope I will never have any need for but who knows maybe i'm the target audience but yeah the 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 entire that that's definitely a sign uh on election night that you're up way too late i thought it was interesting to watch uh the punditocracy on twitter and even on cable sort of lurch around to try to find a unified storyline from last night Mm -hmm. because the dems took the house but they didn't take the senate i actually thought it was kind of simple which was Trump made this midterm about himself, right? More than any other president has done. You know, yeah. but I'm, and certainly it's always a referendum on the president. He specifically wrapped his arms around that and said, that "You either vote for me or vote against me." Um, he also, we can listen to the audio later. He also had that great line where he said, "Remember, midterms used to be boring. No one knew what those were, but we've made the midterms really fun." Like he had kind of invented the genre, you yeah. know, like something he had created himself. I just thought, looking at the results last night. His brand of Trumpy conservatism was absolute poison for Republicans in suburban districts, right? It helped mm-hmm. cost them the House or at least padded the margin for the Democrats. And yet those overtly racist appeal appeals, those overtly racist ads, that kind of appeal worked in certain yeah. places. It worked in Florida where Trump invested a lot of time. It has apparently worked in Georgia. It worked. It it worked in Ohio. It worked in Indiana. It worked in North Dakota. So this idea that we're all kind of sitting around here waiting for this maximal repudiation of Trump and Trumpism, right? It it isn't going to happen because the that kind of that kind of politics, as stomach turning as it is, has appeal in all these places. Right. It isn't going to happen because it's too effective. Um, you know, I think that the, I mean, for me, I mean, obviously you said that Trump made the uh, made the midterms all about him, and I think that's indisputable. I think that my biggest takeaway is that for all of the hand wringing um, on the on in some conservative quarters about the Trump presidency over the the past couple of years, um, the sort of uh, proxy hand wringing by you know well-meaning liberals about what Trump would mean for uh, the future of of uh, the Republican Party but also just our democracy um I think that that Trump is is has proven his like just indisputable value to the Republican Party and and the fact that he is not some sort of outlier that tapped into you know, ta- that tapped into a, a, a feeling or a, a, a vibe at, at one moment in time, but that that sort of the, the just the core appeal of Trump and of his um, more loud messaging is a an intrinsic part of the Republican Party. And it'll be really interesting to see. Uh, I mean, this is looking way out, but I mean, because obviously the next election will be a presidential one. Um but going forward beyond that, I mean, how does I mean, are, are we going to see Trump trotted out post presidency every midterm, every election because he's so linked to what to, I mean to the party's core? Yes. Uh, Answer. I yes. mean, it's yeah. I mean, it, but but I think that that was an open question going into last night, right? I mean, I think that I think that his 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 value to the future of the party, um, you would have had to say was a little bit a little bit uncertain. Yeah, I'm gonna, it it was at least an open question coming out of 2016. Cuz sure. there was this sense that okay, he he sort of won this narrow electoral college victory and now he's just going to sink the the party entirely. Mm-hmm. And every you know, there was the there was take number 1 which was finally the Republican party will be burned to the ground and they must reinvent themselves. And then there was, yeah. you know, all the, and then and then the take number 2 turned out, "Oh wait, the Republican party has just reshaped itself around Trump." It's not, you know, but I think take number three is what you're saying, which is he can sort of throw off just enough electoral success, put aside even the two Supreme Court justices he's already put up, but he can throw off enough Senate wins for Mitch McConnell and, you know, enough sort of, you know, enough, he lost the House, but again, that's not totally uncommon with a, with a sitting president, um, that the party kind of shrugs its shoulders and goes, oh, well, you know, this is maybe not 
ideal, but you know, this is not also bad enough just electorally that we're going to, that there's anything we're going to do about this. And I, but I also think you just, the, just the mass acquiescence of, you know, the Republican, you know, power players, right? Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, you know, it's like when Jeff Flake, who, who likes to tweet every once in a while is your, you know, your one ideological holdout. Yeah. There really aren't any. And so, you know, I, I think also there's just this media frustration that goes beyond, you know, is the media liberal, is the media rooting for Democrats? You just, when you look at Devin Nunes, who, by the way, won re-election last night, and the <laughs> way he kind of carried out legitimate, what should have been legitimate investigations is just crazy kangaroo court, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm going to investigate Trump and Russia and come to the conclusion that Hillary Clinton is the, is, is the true villain here. Yeah. Um, that actually upsets the media in a way. Because not only do they go after truth, but they have this kind of invested interest in in the government sort of working properly and mm-hmm. and, and sort of you know there's there is a kind of old fashioned belief that the house shouldn't just be a ridiculous partisan you know kangaroo court it should be something that that is working and checking each other and and I think that offends them in a way and so when you see the the, the racist appeals offend them or a lot of them. And but then also this kind of idea that government is just not working and and broken and sort of in the tank. So mm-hmm. the Democrats winning last night, and then you know the promise we heard on MSNBC and other places last night that they're going to ask for Trump's tax returns, norms will be restored. I think that's that's a kind of appealing media narrative as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a lot to break down there, but I think that I think that uh, on the one hand, you know. It's not just there's the tax returns. Um, I mentioned I, I don't think I mentioned this on the show yet, but you know at the very at the beginning of the night, um, you know the Fox News had I mean the, the 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 various people on Fox News were sort of sniping at each other, and I just kind of got the idea this goes back to them calling the election, I guess that they had an idea that they they could they could uh, or they calling the house that they had an idea that that was coming, and not sniping over ideological things, just like weird weird little uh, disagreements. Um, they were already talking about what the Democrats would do if they retook the House mm-hmm. in, in sort of conspiratorial tones. Greg Gutfeld said that they were going to reopen the Russia investigation, which I believe my notes say he said would be like, be like giving CPR to a corpse, which um, is just a wonderful, a wonderful image. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's there are definitely people who who there, there is the desire to have the sort of norms, the the, the regular processes of government restored. Um but even on the right, I mean, you know, there are there are any number of of conservative voices on MSNBC who any party, you know, any other conservative elsewhere would say are they, these people are rhinos or not conservatives or whatever. But they probably wouldn't say that about Hugh Hewitt, who was just on M- MSNBC, sort of gleefully uh, embracing the 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 rest of, I mean, the the future Supreme Court picks that Trump would now be able to make. Um, so in some sense, on that side. You know, order has it's not that order is being restored. Order never left. All that really matters is the future of the of the judiciary. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. All right, let's take a pause, David, for the overworked Twitter joke of the week. More election to come here. But let's uh, do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. David, did you check out Oprah? Oprah Winfrey <laughs> going to Georgia last week for gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams who, as we said, seems to have come up short in her bid last night to become the first black female governor in American history. Oprah went to Georgia, uh, gave an amazing speech, uh, a couple of amazing speeches there. It was an overworked Twitter joke uh, to say that Oprah was going to say, you get a vote, you get a vote, everybody gets a vote. <laughs> the alternative was, has everybody at this Oprah Stacey Abrams event looked under their seats already? Thanks to Eric Sand for that one. I love I love the the <laughs> the power of Oprah's favorite things. That uh, just uh, continues through history unabated. Um, last Wednesday, David, October thirty first, Derek Rose, former league MVP who has suffered through about one million injuries, scored fifty Sheesh. points for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Right now, the date was October thirty first. You got that? Yeah. It was an overworked Twitter joke to say Derek Rose dressed as Derek Rose for Halloween. Oh wow. Thanks to NRL today and Bill Simmons, by the way, for that one. Bill, Bill coming through with the overworked Twitter joke. <laughs> also, sort of lost in the election 
in a way that it shouldn't have been was the was the saga of Jacob Wall. Did you see this? Oh my gosh. This kind of I followed this very closely. Yeah, yeah good. Well, this sort of pro as MSNBC called him a pro-Trump conspiracy peddler who was this part of this alleged scheme to uh, to advance this idea that Robert Mueller had an active sex life. Which we, again, I don't want to. I don't want no, no judgments about Robert Mueller. But the idea was that he was going to that he was putting out this quote unquote dossier uh, that was done by Surefire Intelligence. Wall denied having any connection with this company, Surefire Intelligence, and then it was found, as MSNBC says, that the company was linked to Wall in numerous ways, and a and a company phone number redirected to a number registered to Wall's mother. <laughs> Oh, yeah. you never, you never want to give it away. You never want to give it away that way. It never stops being funny too, when you just it's just said out loud. I don't. I mean, I it is it. Yeah, go on. Anyway, there were lots of overworked Twitter jokes. There was the whole hipster coffee shop in L.A. Uh, yes. genre, subgenre. I think my favorite though comes from the Atlantic's Adam Serwer. Uh, he says, "Seems unfair that Jacob's mom built the wall and also has to pay for it." Thanks for, <laughs> thanks to All Night Allen, Paul Bosson for that one. All right, David, let's talk about. Topic number two, which is Trump's closing argument over the last week. You know, the midterm elections used to be like boring, didn't they? Do you even remember what they were? People say midterms. They say, what is that? What is it? Right now? It's like the hottest thing. These guys are making a fortune because of me and you. But it, It's true. It's true. I mean, who ever even heard of midterm? They don't even know what it is. I've had a lot of people say, I don't know what midterm is, but now I'm watching every single minute and I'm going out to vote. But the key is you have to go out to vote because in a sense, I am on the ticket. You got to go out to vote. Did you feel at any point like you were living in a Rick Perlstein uh, nonfiction book? about conservatism that will be written 20 years from now in real time oh my gosh, yes. when all this stuff was happening. Yeah. Um, from here are the things I wrote down that were part of Trump's closing argument. People have noted, by the way, when we talked about Trumpism in the first segment, that he could have just run on the economy, right? Economy kind of roaring, you know, he could have, he could have made the pledge that the economy's doing well. Vote for me, vote for my proxies in Congress. Instead, he wrote, he ran on, Migrant caravan. Mm-hmm. He ran on media, uh, and media is the enemy of the American people. He ran on birthright citizenship. Uh, he, his economic advisor talked about abolishing the federal minimum wage. Mm. We also got this uh, racist ad that got compared to the infamous Willie Horton ad uh, from the 1988 presidential campaign. Jimbo, let's take a listen to that. Thousand migrant caravan crossing Mexico, marching toward our border. Dangerous illegal criminals like cop killer Luis Bracamontes don't care about our laws. America cannot allow this invasion. The migrant caravan must be stopped. President Trump and his allies will protect our border and keep our families safe. America's future depends on you. Stop the caravan. Vote Republican. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. So that was it. What did, what did you make of the final week of the campaign and just the weird sort of moment we were dunked into as a society? My favorite, I, I mentioned the the on-air Fox uh, panelist sniping earlier. I, what, my favorite moment was, the, was early on when they had some consultant on there insisting that Trump hadn't pivoted away from the economy in his closing mm. argument and got some <laughs> and was getting pushback from everybody else on stage. Um, that's funny. And I guess there's some, I mean, I mean, I guess you could argue degrees or something like that, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that, you know, without spending too much time with the meta narratives, I think in some sense, you know, obviously Trump was, was proven correct in making that judgment call. Right. I mean, not just in the results of the election, uh, and specifically in the States that he spent significant time in, but, um, but also, you know, there's a lot of exit polls that put that put the economy really low on people's on people's uh, you know list of concerns. Um, it's hard to know, right? Because we'd have to we'd have course. to sort of run it back. That if he, you know, there's a, expecting like what would happen if Trump were ac- actually presidential and actually normal. <laughs> it's like I feel yeah. like something we just do all the time. But I don't I don't know I don't know how different it would have been. It's kind of a weird. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting question. But I I agree with you. I think you probably. You know, those close races in Florida, 
um, you know, Texas, places like that where immigration and quote unquote security really plays. Yeah, maybe they would have been different. Yeah, maybe so. And 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 maybe and maybe that would be, you know, I mean, it, it probably it's in a, especially in a place like Texas and Florida, you know, it cuts both ways. You know, I mean, it, it mobilizes both sides. Um, you, you one would one would think. And I think that the, the numbers are, are going to kind of bear that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it, it, it is an interesting question whether um, Trump has to go to the kind of disturbing extremes that he that he has gone in the past couple of weeks if, if that's necessary for his, a necessary part of his appeal or just if his presence and a, you know catchy enough chant is unnecessary I mean is, is all that's really needed right I mean because it's easy I, I I find myself you know watching his rallies and I'm not to me the content is the sort of last thing on the on the checklist right I mean it's not Specifically, what he's saying is just the sort of his presence and the way he's saying it. Yeah, it's so a sort it's, of it, be in with Trump. You know, we're going to commune with we're going to commune with our guy essentially. Exactly. And whatever he happens to say, we'll just sort of roll with it. I like this tweet from um, Mark Tracy, our old pal who covers college sports over at the New York Times, where he basically tweeted out a press box segment. He said, "Like I feel like the conventional wisdom in liberal circles has been that the Trump era has politicized." day-to-day life to an unacceptable and hopefully temporary degree. But what if it has politicized day-to-day life for liberals in a way it has already been politicized for conservatives? And Uh I think what he's saying there that's interesting is if you're a Fox News watcher, this is the kind of just day-to-day bonkers, crazy, everything everything is political world you already lived in. Yeah. And that liberals who, you know, were listening to NPR and watching The Daily Show and, um, you know, getting their advance tickets to go see Roma in a few weeks <laughs> were, were, were living in this kind of, you know, relatively placid universe. And now we're all in the same, <laughs> we're all in the same, you know, panic room together. And, and, I, and I think he might be right to an extent. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. I mean, I was I was having a conversation with with our pal and coworker Justin Charity before we came in, and uh, I'm not assigning these takes to him. This is this this was mostly <laughs> me making this questionable argument. But I do think that there's a there's an extent to which for all the you know for all the, the you know commentary that the meta commentary we have about Nate Silver and and the New York Times, uh, the New York Times various charts and graphs and everything else. Um, it, there is a certain, or, or there was in the pre-Trump era, a certain piece that came with that, you know, with the sort of predictability of everything and the and the knowability of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Trump Trump's election upended all that. Now, you know, there was the there was, and this is purely from an emotional standpoint. I mean, I don't think uh, the the kind of the point of this is that there's not statistics to back it up, but I think that there was a, I think that 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 it opened people's minds to the possibility of a enormous blue wave because you know what the Trump election cons- proved was that nobody's model is a good model right <laughs> um and i think that that sort of upset liberals in a way or, or or that kind of roiled liberals um just just because of the the possibility but mostly the uncertainty right and even though and you wrote about this really well on the ringer.com last night um it, that we ended up in the same place that we started, right? I mean, we ended we ended up we ended up with the with the most likely result, right? The the result that everyone probably would have agreed upon two days ago or two months ago, but the but the the journey from in that span of time has just been remarkably unsettling. Yeah, it really has, and and it's and again, I just think it's this. I don't. I never want to be old, uh, technophobe, uh, anti-Nate Silver, anti-whatever guy, because I think this, I remember the, I remember the old world and Mm -hmm. you, you were talking about how, how much election TV has changed in the old world, like Jeff Greenfield and those guys and David (laughs) Gergen, those were the smart guys on cable. Right. And now those are kind of the dumb guys. (laughs) Those are the guys who are sitting, you know, it's like watching MSNBC last night especially a midterm, right? Which is just so much about districts and states and, you know, places that are unfamiliar to even people that are politically plugged in. 
um, it's really about Steve Kornacki, right? Like they, yeah, we, we yeah. need the information guy. And when 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 Chris when you go to Chris Matthews sitting there stroking his chin about you know some Pennsylvania thing or Tip <laughs> O'Neill or whatever, it's just like come on, you know, this is so this is such a waste of time. Yeah, they, I mean, Brian Williams was sitting there and like Kornacki was clearly the star, but Williams kept going. Who was who was anchoring the coverage? Kept going. Steve Schmidt has been really who's been very patient. Um, we're going to get to you in just a second, but first we have to go to Kornacki. And then it was Chris Matthews sitting over there has been very patient. And yeah. I, and I just got the sense that everybody was giving Williams the evil eye in the studio. Like, <laughs> why the hell haven't you called on me? But it's like, we don't want to, we don't want to hear from you anymore. We don't want to hear from the guy who knows stuff. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's totally true. I think that, I mean, just to, to, to back up your point. I fl- I was flipping channels right before we started recording, and of course, and MSNBC had John Meacham on this morning, right? I mean, they they're 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 <laughs> waiting me, for the let day. Let me guess, it was something something very portentous <laughs> and historical. He yes. was saying exactly, but it's like he's he's out, he's testing out material during the daytime hours of MSNBC the morning after. Whereas Norm, you know, there there it's not that long ago that he would have had that Gergen spot oh, center he, stage. He would have been um, the Gergen. It's a yeah, sage. Exactly. And it's I'm, like a and I'm sage, sure, right? It's a wise yeah. man. Yeah. And I'm sure and I'm sure we'll see Doris Kearns Goodwin, you know, in the, the before the day's <laughs> out or whatever and that's and that's great. There but it, but you're right that that what we're interested in is um is, you know, the data. And it's funny because there's I, I was watching I was watching CNN last night and I don't know I I guess it was a deliberate it was a deliberate camera shot but when when uh when Jake and Wolf were like doing like their main emceeing role, John King was like bizarrely standing off in the background. It looked like he was running lines, but he was just sort of like looking at a, t- a monitor. It was very, <laughs> very strange. But all of that is to say that, uh, you know, there. It, I remember when John King was being touted as the next big thing in news, right? He was certainly going to be the next Wolf Blitzer. And of course, Wolf is immortal. So that was that was probably a bad call. But I was watching him last night. And my first reaction, was, I mean, the, the first feeling I had was, Man, he's sort of like sunk since that, since those predictions of his of his you know impending uh, greatness. But also, but then I I, I had the, the the second take, which comes back to what you were saying, is that he actually has a more central role to the future of news than Wolf Blitzer does, or than you know than the yes. traditional anchor. It's all about the data, and not just having the data at your finger on a piece of paper in front of you, but the felicity with the data, right? That that he and and certainly Steve Kornacki have that that. You can run this touchscreen monitor, um, but implicit in, in it's not just a technological thing. Implicit in that is understanding every precinct, what every number means, and on, on a very deep level. And you know, th- this is how we engage in sports. This is how we engage in everything now. It's just this kind of like granular study of everything that eventually, uh, you know, piles up into some some sort of deeper, broader understanding. Do we need to split it off like we do for the baseball playoffs? Do we need the stats cast? Separate feed? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you turn on stats cast and you see Kornacki um, and you see uh, who who else could we could, – what other sort of number crunch? We could put any, anybody named Nate could be on that thing who crunches numbers. There's like the, – do we got multiple Nates? I like get a Harry Enton. So many Nates. Throw them on there, right? Um, you'd need somebody just to kind of lighten the mood a little bit, you know, like a Catherine Miller or something like a Ben mm-hmm. Smith, Ben Smith, you know, somebody can kind of speak that language, but is not in that world. Yeah. Kind of pull, pull them out of the, uh, pull them out of the numbers for a little bit. And then on other channel is essentially the equivalent of like major league baseball play by play. Exactly. So there's Wolf well, and there's Jake and there's all those kind of guys. I think that I think and not to take your your joke too seriously, but I think that that you know in, in some sense that <laughs> I, th- I think that that already exists, right? I mean, the problem with the stats cast on sports is that if you really wanted stats, you wouldn't be watching it on TV, or you wouldn't be you know the audio part portion of television or whatever. And and so much of the the way that we t- that we took in the election uh, last night and also, but just you know in general now is this kind of running conversation that's going on on Twitter. And and not just on Twitter. I mean, every blog post, every update in the numbers, every every you know uh, take by an on screen statistician is an implicit response to another to to another uh, statisticians or or you know numbers person's <laughs> uh, point of view. You know, it wouldn't have been shocking that Fox called 
the the uh, co- called Congress, except for its you know except in relationship to what the other networks were doing and what the models were showing and everything else. And 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 on Twitter, you know, it's it, every every tweet. I mean, five thirty eight wouldn't have changed their model or probably wouldn't have changed their model except in relationship to others. And uh, and and everybody online is tweeting, you know, and and subtweeting. Um, everybody else's statistics. So it's a, I mean, that, that conversation is taking place and it's, and it's, you know, both sort of, I, I, it's hard to even say it's enlightening, you know I mean? It's, it's, there's just so much noise. Yeah. I would, I would say that Kornacki makes television viewing feel essential because he does feel like he knows stuff and you're getting it in a very user-friendly way that it'd still be hard to kind of get online without Mm -hmm. shopping around a lot. I feel the one weakness of it is that people like, Dave Weigel, I saw saying this last night at various times, can say Ned Lamont's going to be the next governor of Connecticut. The only reason, the only reason he doesn't look like it right now is just a, part- a particularity of the count, right? Yeah. Whereas the guys on television have to be a little more cautious and and kind of can't make because almost they're almost so dedicated to their nerdery um, yeah. that they can't be that sort of swaggering and be like, eh, this this thing is over. Uh, it happened with Ned Lamont. I've seen people saying that about John Tester this morning, mm-hmm. uh, who's who's uh, Montana Senate race is still out. I am a, I am fascinated by the wise man because it's such a, such a character of cable television, and I feel it feels on the one hand like the wise man should be basically in huge trouble. The David Gergen, you know, should be saying, "Gosh, am I going to have to I have to sell that extra condo in Florida?" You know, my the CNN sinusure that I have essentially had uh, seemingly since like 1982 is finally, if I'm not working in the White House, coming to an end. But the other thing is these cable networks hire so many people that there's enough room. I mean, I I, I honestly can't watch CNN on election night because just the the quality to noise ratio is so crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I can totally roll with Jake Tapper, who, by the way, interestingly, has kind of fused Data guy plus news anchor plus wise man all together into one package. He's yeah. kind of all those. He, he's kind of the uh, ultimate five tool outfielder of uh, cable news. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I actually can't watch because there's just too many people on the set. I mean, I, I write about sports television for a living and and, and, and it's too much. You know, it's like yeah. I, I watched Michael Irvin and, and Stephen A. Smith debate the Cowboys on Monday, and I couldn't get through 10 minutes of CNN's election coverage. We're talking about number of champions. Okay. We're still up there right now. I asked you a question. I asked you a question. So, uh, well, when you go to history, let's go into history. Don't just go to your history. Let's go to the history. What does that say about CNN? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the Jake Tapper also has this sort of just sourpuss of like, it, like, like he doesn't, he, he, he's, <laughs> he does, he's there, he doesn't <laughs> smile. That's that's key. No, right? and I and I and I think that yeah, I think that the I think that the fact that you can read whether or not he it comes out in his voice, the fact that you can read an implicit disdain for the statistical analysis on you can read that onto his face is helpful because it because I, I watching myself, I go back and forth between like the just immutability of Koronaki now, you know, or whatever. And, and just like, can we please just have one person talking in a calm voice? That would, I mean, that would, that would mean everything to me right now. I think you're, but I think you're right about the, about the wise men and everything else. I mean, you, and about how many people the networks hire. I mean, if these, if we didn't have three competing networks that were going head to head uh, and trying to fill up, you know, 24 hours basically of programming each every day, there probably would have, I mean, there may not probably, there may never have been room for the statistical analysis. You know, we, there, there would have certainly, you can look at specific, someone specific like Steve Kornacki, who was sort of brought on, uh, you know, as like, a, you know, a, a fill in for Chris Hayes and then found this kind of second life that became more valuable than, than what he was brought there to do. Um, so they, they sort of, they wouldn't have been there for, if not for all of this, all these, the need for just filling airtime, but now, and they, they've displaced the wise people, but, uh, but the wise people still have jobs because like I said, there's, there's Wednesday mornings to fill. And, uh, (laughs) I know listening, listening, I was listening to it on the, in the car, you know, they have like a feed of MSNBC and CNN live on Sirius radio as I was coming in and making my drive in this morning. I'm like, Oh my gosh, they're just still going. It's like Hallie Jackson's got an hour. Right. And it was like, I have to kind of, and Meacham was on, as you say, and just kind of like, ah, Kornacki's still alive. So let's go to him. And we just got to fill so much time. David, let's do our third topic and just cram in a bunch of Funny election and election media notes that we didn't have room for. Speaking of MSNBC, am I the only one that finds it a little weird that 
post-fabulism, Brian Williams is just sort of carrying on in news anchor voice. Mm -hmm. That kind of combination, speaking of hybrids, that kind of combination of Tom Brokaw and hip dad guy um, voice. I heard him say last night, he goes, you know, it's going to be a minute until we get the results in from Georgia. (laughs) Oh, you know the phrases, Mr. Williams. (laughs) You know how to reach the kids. There's something kind of audacious that just he's still on television. Well, I, I, you know, I, I recommend anybody who's, you know, interested in his redemption or the potential thereof, listen to the episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast where he uh, talks about, um, you know, how human memory works and how uh, Brian Williams as the the epitome of, of the, this phenomenon should be forgiven for his uh, fabulism. But, yeah, I mean, I think that there's the, the moment bull, that he bull, popped bullshit, up. Bull, bullshit, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> the moment that he popped up on MSNBC. um it he ha, he sort of it's like it's like the shackles were off but you know he didn't have to be as buttoned up as he used to be but he only had but he only had one button to unbutton i guess you know what i mean and it, but i i sort of i he, I, only, I, he I, only had a half zip to unzip yeah, exactly uh he did i love i love this brian williams i just think that i think that the like like msnbc has uh msnbc's like big night coverage has this is this incredible crew of of voices that at at various moments seem to be like the most fun crew to hang out with as a group but also seem to sort of just be like secretly seething at each other the entire time you mm-hmm. know i mean it, it's the 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 interpersonal politics there are really great and Brian Williams is just sort of the the oblivious party host, you know, like the guy the guy who's like <laughs> handing out cocktails without without realizing that like the house is burning down is just it, it's 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 really and I I mean I honestly mean this is a compliment. He his he's a uh, he's got this just incredible incredible this incredible like just lounge singer vibe that is just that that makes the makes everything just so wonderful and and you know awkward to watch at times yeah chris matthews seems to be the seething smokestack if we're going with a party metaphor yes that he's not more of the star which is really the story of of chris matthews's life and career yeah, and television career. but he's just you know every time they go to him he's like why the hell have you been talking so long what this might be the first. This might be the first election. I don't remember the Trump one, but this is this is it's it's we're not too far removed from every election, every midterm. There being a story about him seething at the 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 prevalence of Maddow or Keith Olbermann. He was Olbermann, you know, who, yeah, who they, I miss by the way on election night. Oh, for sure. I I I like the Olbermann era. There was kind of an uncomfortable Olbermann and Matthews era. Where it was like, you know, why, why, why is Chris Matthews getting to talk? But yes. Olbermann felt like at that in that era, the kind of perfect, you know, slightly partisan cable news anchor, but also just the facts guy. He was really, really good at that. The um, Speaking of cable news, how about Sean Hannity getting on stage with Trump in Cape Girardeau, Missouri? Uh, here's what I found amazing about that. The idea that that Sean Hannity is a not only a Trump fan but a Trump advocate and a Trump shill is not surprising, right? There's no, there's literally zero surprise in that. No, what, no, no. Of course. What not. amazed me was that he was so eager to deny it and distance himself from it. You know, he had that thing beforehand. Said, look, the Trump campaign announced it that he was going to be a special guest. He said, no, no, no. I'm just going there to cover the rally, the final rally of the campaign, like I always do. <laughs> Then they got him up on stage and he made remarks. He said some unflattering things about the media, which apparently included his Fox News colleagues. Um, and then afterwards, he said, look, no, 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 I, I wasn't. I was I was telling the truth. This was just a total surprise. I had no idea. I was. Just, why is he distancing himself from this? Like nobody in his audience actually cares about this. Right? No, I mean, the whole thing feels a little bit like my my Twitter was hacked. You know, it's like I, I have to give I have to do the. <laughs> performative aspect of denying this so that I can continue my employment or whatever, but like no one actually cares. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it, it certainly, it, it, it made for some good, you know, tweets from the liberal side and, and, uh, and some very, and some outrage, you know, but, but I, but I think that, that it is sort of amazing that he feels, you know, that he feels the need to do that. And actually before he, the, the morning after his appearance, before he 
tweeted his explanation that it was all a surprise to him that he got called up. Um, where while the rest of Twitter was just you know photo or videos of him speaking put side by side with you know the tweet of him saying he wasn't going to speak, we're just zooming around Twitter. He was just uh, I I looked at his his timeline and I think he was he just put up a video of him being like him being embraced by various members of the crowd. Mm. How he just sort of walked in and was just hugging just you know <laughs> your average Joes from around the world. Uh, or from from not around the world, but from from around that Missouri. district, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it it is the, the the denial was was just a wonderful little thing. Yeah, just just a strange moment that was, and it turns out like lots of Fox hosts have appeared at various Republican. Fox had a, a statement saying this was an unfortunate distraction, and uh, that Fox hosts were prohibited from. Um, from appearing and it turns out just several of them have appeared at various campaign events over the course of the year with no punishment of course I also loved and I'm stealing this from somebody on Twitter I can't remember who it is apologies person of uh, smart person on Twitter but just the genre, the mini genre of articles that come out where anonymous Fox people talk about how embarrassed they are to be working with Sean Hannity oh my and gosh, we ju- yeah. do we just call the same people every time that there's one mm-hmm. of these that there's one of these meltdowns just like every year and a half you know, I like, ah, just so embarrassing. I, 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 it just makes me want to quit. And then, when the next, and then that person is available to take calls uh, in two years when there's another thing that happens like this. Yeah. The um, couple other notes. What did you make of the Trump Game of Thrones meme? <laughs> Sanctions uh, are coming. As the art director of the Ringer.com, <laughs> yes. Um, I want to say that I'm on very the artistic a- merits. Oh my gosh! There, there was. I thought that it was that it was impressively done. I don't know if anyone else even has the the brain space to remember back to the earliest days of the Trump presidency when all these stories were zooming around about their inability to staff the White House. I don't. The, one know. of the most shocking one of the most shocking things to me was that they were just like tweeting out graphics that just looked like they'd been done in MS Paint and probably were. You know, I mean, like it was <laughs> like really, really bad, really, really bad social media design. And I thought that this one as a as sort of just implicitly offensive as it was, was actually, you know, it, it looked like someone had put some time and, and care and, and had some actual Photoshop experience to do it. Uh-huh. Um, of all of the things, though, that, that uh, you know, that we, we, we constantly have this debate about whether, whether or not Trump is sort of like trolling the media or deliberately trying to distract the media or if it's just this is Trump is what Trump is and, and you know, the media just, you know, reacts. Um, this certainly felt like trolling, you know, it felt like we were like, he was trying to get, just trying to, to, you know, needle everyone to get, to get the sort of reaction that that tweet got. Or he, when we say he, we mean somebody on it. We don't think Trump knows what that is, right? No, no, no. Trump but does no, not know, understand the phrase winter is coming. You're right. Surely and maybe not. that's the, dis- maybe that's the distinction. Maybe the, maybe Scavino or whatever the social media team knows has, has a, has a more, has a deeper or more philosophical, uh, to feel uh, understanding of the way that Trump gets reaction. It was very Trumpy, but it was also very Obama-esque, right? Obama uh-huh. would have understood the value of that kind of pop culture. Obama would have never put the meme up on Twitter, but, <laughs> but he would have understood the reference, you know, uh, the value of making that reference. So it was a mm-hmm. weird. It was a weird sort of joining with Trump and his uh, predecessor. Uh, other notes: there was the Beto f bomb on MSNBC. Yeah. In every single part of Texas, all of you showing the country how you do this. I'm so fucking proud of you guys. Yeah, I was. I was watching that one live. That was exciting. That was. That was kind of. Amazing. I kind of turned to my wife. I was like, Did he just? Did he just? Uh, did he just say that? Yes. Um, that was that was an amazing thing, and also by the way, the end of Betomania temporarily. I mean, uh, uh, do you do we think a, a Rolling Stone feature is being written right now? On yeah, the, I mean, I, on on it, Beto, what's next I for Beto? It's impossible to predict. Obviously, um, I, I as I was watching his concession speech, I was I, I saw different people that I know react in completely opposite ways. Which you know, on the one hand, was well, that's the end of Beto as a national figure. And that was not just reaction to his loss, but in reaction to his speech. Um, and then other people, a, a, a different person, but many other people online saying, you know, this is his sort of, his big RFK moment, whatever. His, this is this this speech is the, le- the leap into the national pol- political scene. You saw Steve Kerr tweeted Beto 2020 last night, right? Oh, no, I, I missed that. Um, but, but you're but that's, fired but, from the ringer, by the way, for not knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think that I think that there will be enough 
um, there'll be enough narratives taking up airspace over the next several months that this won't, that, you know, this this isn't a preemptive, you know, coronation, certainly, that we there's there's no need to spend any more time on Beto right now. Um, and probably, you know, if if, there, if he does have a future on the national in national political scene, uh, this it's probably a good thing for him to sort of keep his head down for the next year or so, and then be able to sort of reemerge as a as a uh, new dark horse. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, I, I I'm sure that someone is someone has already greenlit the you know uh, uh, Beto and Winter piece for Rolling Stone or wherever else it is. Can I can I go ahead and headline it while we're at it? Please. It gets Beto, the second <laughs> act of a celebrity Democrat. All right. By George Packer. Right. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Sean Finnessy just greenlit that for you right now. <laughs> I did love, as a small media thing, the sort of dueling performative Texanness of Beto and Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. Beto had the and this this speaks to you and I, David. Talk about talk about a candidate that speaks to you and I. Forget forget the policy just for a second. But Beto tweeting the picks uh or it was a staffer tweeting the video of him in the Whataburger line after a debate the late night yeah. Whataburger run uh something that you and I did did and did together multiple times uh and then there was the slightly more staged and awkward uh Ted Cruz goes into Bucky's to buy beer which is the you know kind of the Walmart of sure. gas stations in Texas now mm-hmm. and is a big thing but just just them showing the nation how Texan they could be uh, in the kind of most Texas way, I I, I really enjoyed that because that, like I said, that really that really spoke to me. The other note I wanted to cover to you, this comes from our ace producer Jim Cunningham. Nevada was a great state for the Democrats. Uh, Jackie Rosen won the Senate, but we also found out this according to the New York Post this morning, the deceased brothel owner Dennis Hoff has managed to win an election for the Nevada State Assembly seat in Tuesday. Hoff is dead. <laughs> Died last right. month at the, uh, it was that the budding politician was found deceased after a rally with porn star Ron Jeremy and former Arizona Sheriff Joe, Joe Arpaio. Mm-hmm. It was one of the great moments in American political history. Yeah. So uh, congrats to Dennis Hoff. Do you think there was a Dennis Hoff victory party last night? 100%, right? <laughs> Somebody was celebrating, that's for sure. No, there was a great, I mean, just in, in terms of the annals of politics, this will definitely be brought up. I mean, this is definitely one of those stories that someone's going to rediscover in 20 years and write an incredible piece. I, don't, I mean, I don't even, if writing a piece is going to have any currency in 20 years, but we'll, but you know, this will, this will definitely be something that people rediscover and, uh, and just laugh, laugh about. I mean, the one of the great stories, and I think that this was, reported a couple of weeks back in, was it New York Magazine? Might have been Politico, but I think it was New York Mag about how Republicans had been running as quickly as they could away from Dennis Hoff when he was campaigning, you know, after he won the won the nomination, but, um, I mean, won the primary, mm-hmm. but then as soon as he, as soon as he died, they were campaigning for him, <laughs> basically, just because they would get, you know, they they get to replace him. Um, just in terms of just like the weird, like, screw turning of, of the political system, that was a good one, too. One more note about Beto, which I just forgot to say a minute ago. Here's here, if you're if you're a political journalist, here here's the real sadness today when you see Beto losing, Gillum losing, and Stacey Abrams probably losing in Georgia. Those those are those are career makers, right? That's the Beto, Beto winning is a book, you know. That that's don't don't underestimate how valuable it is for journalists to be covering the guy who or gal who wins, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we we saw it with all these people who ran, you know, Maggie Haberman to Katie Turon on MSNBC who were covering Trump. And mm-hmm. that turned out to be really, really good for their careers. Yeah. And, and, and when the, Beto, you know, basically has a close loss to Ted, Ted Cruz doesn't do much for your career. Beto, yeah. that that's 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 a thing, right? Stacey yeah. Abrams, that's a thing. Andrew Gillum, that's a thing. But never neglect the careerism element of this. No, and you could see that on the way that the, the various correspondents were farmed out um, by all the networks. I mean, MSNBC in particular. Um, Chris Hayes, I, I believe, was there, right? Chris Hayes was with Beto, but you could see that you could see the sort of pecking order of like who got which races. Katie Turr, I believe, was in Georgia, um, mm-hmm. and and they sort of you know it kind of it you know trickled down from there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's certainly it's it, there was definitely. Uh, um, I, I gotta say, I miss Chris Hayes at the desk. They, there, there was not enough Beto action to keep him to, for, no. you know, that 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 you know allowed for Chris Hayes' continued presence throughout the night. But, um, 
but yeah, I mean, it, the, you you could definitely see that 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 he was that that you know they were they they MSNBC as an institution was very interested in that uh, that race because Chris Hayes was there. We could do a whole segment sometime on how the weirdness of what cable network is playing at the rally for the yes. uh, because there was a, a insane moment where I believe it was MSNBC went to Georgia. And MSNBC came up on the screen at the Stacey yes. Abrams rally, and everybody—or no, it was it was a Gill? I can't remember. It was, I think it was it was the Andrew Gillum rally, actually. Excuse me. And everybody started cheering, and mm-hmm. there have been some kind of you know Broward County votes out, and everybody's like, oh wait, did, did, did it just flip? And it turned out that people were just seeing MSNBC and they were cheering for their favorite cable network that had come yeah. up, and also yes. maybe the the fact that that uh, voting rights had been restored to felons in Florida. Anyway, that was just a weird weird sort of sub thing. Should we close with sad Steve Bannon, David? We <laughs> Yes, a- absolutely, let's do it. He went to Topeka, he went to Topeka, Kansas. Uh story was in the Topeka Capital Journal. Uh he went to a Holiday Inn last week to stump Big week for Holiday Inn, by the way. <laughs> that's where that that's where that bad Mueller press conference was too, Oh, so. yeah, yeah, forget about that. <laughs> Big weekend for the for the room you can rent at Holiday Inn. Yes. You, know, you always walk past those when you're at the kind of like small holiday inn. You're like, who who really is using this? We we actually uh, we actually answered the question. This is according to the Pitch KC. Um, he he attended this rally for Steve Watkins, a Republican who went up hanging on uh, to his seat in Kansas' second congressional district last night. Uh, according to Smith, who was the reporter there, this is Sherman Smith of the Topeka Capital Journal. Approximately 17 people showed up to see Steve Bannon. Uh, he was wearing the Steve Bannon multiple shirts, sneakers, and uh, safari jacket look. He also, I don't know if you're looking at this photo, but it's incredible. It's You can see in the background the flat screen TV with the cords just kind of hang, you know, <laughs> cords going all the way across the wall. Yeah. Like it's your like it's your campus dorm dorm room, mm-hmm. and also the carpet of the Holiday Inn, which I just love, having seen it so many times. It's kind of the one where there's kind of semi concentric circles. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a brown and teal and tan yes. kind of pattern. This is really the ultimate. I just and it were and it was kind of like there were more articles written about Steve Bannon being at this thing than there were actual yeah. people in attendance. What a moment! Yeah. I mean, he did. I, I will say, Bannon had Bannon's had a had a had a positive moment in the week, which was the David Frum essay about debating Bannon and losing to Bannon and surprisingly losing to Bannon. Mm-hmm. I, by the way, I don't know. I didn't see David Frum last night. I don't know if he's ossified to the point where he's not there. He doesn't. He's not getting on TV. I, as I much, think there was but, a live Atlantic event uh, happening. I just oh, made that, okay. I just made well, that up, but I just, it's a safe. <laughs> I, it's a safe I, I totally guess. believe it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, I think that. Um, that we you know we've we've spent a lot of time and and dedicated talking about Bannon and, and and dedicated a lot of headspace to him over the past couple of years and and uh, you know I, I think that w- when we talked about the New York the New Yorker festival hubbub you know one of the things that we discussed was that he was also speaking at like two other festivals at the exact same time you know, two <laughs> yes. other like ideas festivals at the same time mm-hmm. and you know. There's different ways. There's there's different economic philosophies behind you know behind uh, you know the way you put yourself out there for your for your uh, sort of you know victory lap or whatever. But you know supply and demand does dictate that like the more you get out there, eventually people are going to stop showing up, right? I mean, if he had gone to the same venue for his first post White House you know appearance, there probably would have been a lot more people there. But um, it he, is it he's is quoted in every story now. By the way, yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed that? You just own off the a, record, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you open a random like there was a the New York Times did a big George Soros piece the other day, kind of how Soros became the conservative boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And Bannon had this kind of amazing line where he was like, I want to be the George Soros to I want to be George Soros to the left. Like I want to be so effective and so powerful that they they consider me like that. You know, right now they consider me as kind of like kind of semi-washed up, you know nativist guy but i want to be yeah. that but he's just available apparently for quotation in anything yeah i mean i'm gonna call him phone. for my next piece about uh play by play men you know just uh 
said Steve Bannon, who masterminded Donald Trump's uh, 2016 campaign. Absolutely do. You should just call him and see if there's anything he wants to talk about that, you know, outside of the political sphere. Just say, what, what, are, you, what are you interested in? What, what can I get you on the record about? That would, <laughs> maybe 14 people would read that article. All right, David, like Hallie Jackson uh, with the morning after MSNBC show, we will stand by for subpoenas, uh, for more Trump reacts. I believe he's actually talking, was talking while we were <laughs> recording this podcast, may still be talking. Yeah. And more media stories. Our research is provided by Chris Almeida. Jim Cunningham is our ace producer and tips us off to all the great uh, Nevada brothel owner stories. <laughs> Until next week, David. Happy election day. Happy election day after. More hot media takes coming. See you, buddy. See you later, man. One great news story that broke while we were recording. Okay. Well, two. One, Des Bryant assigned with the, uh, with the same. <laughs> we should, um, let's blow it out. All right, Jim, we're re-recording. Yeah. Two, the um, AFL-CIO released a formal statement on Scott Walker's defeat. Uh-huh. And it just, this is the complete statement. State quote, statement by AF- AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka in response to Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker's re-election defeat, colon, Scott Walker was a national disgrace. In statement. <laughs> Pretty good. That's a great. That's another story that's going to get totally swallowed by this. But that the way that whole, just the Foxconn debacle, and that was at a Washington Post piece breaking right on the eve of it or whatever. But he, and and also the weird thing about how he Scott Walker apparently he signed into law that you that if you were more than a one percentage point behind in a in a, in a governor's race you can't challenge or you can't you can't question the results Uh-oh. or challenge the results and he's he's like 1.2 or 1.5 or something like that points behind so. this also by the way news from the trump press or trump reading off names of losing candidates at the white house and suggesting they deserve to lose for not embracing him <laughs> mia love gave me no love trump said too bad sorry mia <laughs> awesome. Oh my gosh. I never want to be old uh technophobe uh anti Nate Silver anti whatever guy because I think this I remember the I remember the old world. Oh yeah. 